So you'll find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you as we look uh, into God's Word. Let's just pray as we start. Father God, we pray that as we were singing before, that we would uh, meet uh, your Son, the Lord Jesus, in your Word. Father, help us now as we uh, look into Luke's Gospel again. Father, pray that you would speak to us, pray that you would show us Jesus. And Father, help us to love and serve you better, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if I ask you the question, what is the greatest character in all of literature, of all of fiction? Uh, One which reflects the great themes of history, uh, one which reflects the great themes of the Bible and salvation history and redemption. Well, when I was at university, I got a chance to study some of the classics. I did French so there were French classics, you know, uh, so I got to look at people like Balzac, Zola, Victor Hugo. We've got great characters like Jean Valjean, Eugène de Rastignac, uh, Etienne Lantier. Uh, oh yes, you know, I, I can be cultured occasionally. Um, and of course when there's high school there was uh, characters like Tybalt and Benvolio and Mercutio and actually they're all from Romeo and Juliet, aren't they? I think that's the only one I can remember. Uh, but since I've become a parent, I've been reintroduced uh, to a whole new area of literature. So here's what I reckon in terms of the themes of the Bible and the themes of history. Here is the greatest character in all fiction, Mr. Topsy Turvey. Uh, there you go, he's the greatest character in all of fiction. Well, maybe not exactly, uh, but he does represent so much of what Jesus has been teaching through Luke's Gospel. It's been a while since we've uh, been there in our series But that's what Jesus has been showing us. Lives turned upside down. The world turned upside down. We've seen in the last passage, if you sort of glance back to the passage before with the Pharisee and the tax collector. We see Mr. Super Religious, the Pharisee, is God's enemy. And we see that Mr. Super Scum, the tax collector, is God's friend. He's been teaching us about a world where the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. Where the poor and powerless Um, are in and the rich and powerful are out where the first is last and the last is first it's a topsy down uh, topsy turvy kingdom upside down kingdom now it takes the disciples a bit to get their head around this uh, as jesus explains it to them and we're going to see that actually the exact opposite of what our world expects is what's going to be happening this morning so we see three topsy turvy unexpected things about the kingdom this morning the first is Children with nothing are in. Look again at verse 15 with me. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Children in Jesus' day weren't really treated as proper people. Uh, The more I've been thinking about it this week, children really in Jesus' day were treated a bit like the unborn uh, are treated in our society now. I don't know if you saw a few weeks ago, there's been big debates in the United States. And uh, this is a poster that was uh, put up there about unborn children. Parasites don't have rights. That's how our society and American society views the unborn. And that's how they sort of view children in Jesus' day. They weren't considered proper people. So you didn't need to give them proper rights, any rights at all. They're often treated as burdens until they could be of use to their families, until they could put them to work. They were treated as property of the parents, almost like in the language of with the unborn, that uh, a child is just a part of a woman's body that she can do with as she chooses. 
So parents could beat them or sell them or kill them. It was common practice in the Roman world that if you had a child that you didn't want, you could leave them out uh, in the cold to die. It was also common practice of early Christians to find them and rescue them and adopt them. Christians believed that the worth of someone was not decided by their usefulness or the desire of their parents, but they believed in the intrinsic worth of every human being because we're made in God's image. Anyway, it's slightly off topic. But children were generally seen as not worth your time. That's uh, even there in Luke's description of what's happening. Even infants. You're supposed to be surprised by the fact that even infants are coming to him. And we find this a bit of a surprise, don't we? We live in a bit of a baby kissing culture, don't we? If a politician wants to look good, you go around kissing babies. You hold babies. You try and do as much as you can with babies. So here's one. You know, you want to make yourself... Do you want to see what happened? Baby space, is it all? Well, wait. Now it does. (laughs) I'm not sure which is worse. (laughs) But we live in a culture where that sort of thing is, is sort of expected. That's what you do. You, you, you know, you want to make yourself look good uh, by spending time with children. But not in Jesus' day. Now, obviously, parents still loved their children. Don't get me wrong. And you see here as well that parents are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed, possibly even healed. I mean, that's what Jesus normally does as he touches people in the Gospels. But to most in Jesus' culture, this would not be worth Jesus' time. He could be doing much better things. And the disciples go right along with that, don't we? In the second half, they rebuke the people uh, who are bringing their children to Jesus. You can imagine them telling the, the mothers or fathers to go away. Do you not think our teacher has better things to do than mess around with toddlers? Do you not think he has more important people to see? But Jesus is having none of it. Look at verse 16. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The disciples rebuke the parents, but Jesus rebukes the disciples. No, let them come to me. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to people like these. He's not saying these particular children. It's not some sort of far-off prophecy that these would eventually become followers of Jesus. But he wants to teach his disciples how you get in the kingdom. There's hardly a bigger question we can ask, is, is there really? It's the same question the rich ruler will ask in a couple of verses' time. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or in Acts, what the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? That's the question that he's answering And so Jesus says in verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What he's saying there is that we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. What is distinctive about a child? Well, especially with what follows, we're supposed to see that they come to Jesus with empty hands. That's really what's going on. They have no power or status. They have no money or influence. Think about it. They even need to be brought by someone else to go see Jesus. They're that dependent on other people. They have nothing. And it's no wonder then that Jesus uses the language of receive the kingdom. Same word as in Acts 7, 59. 
uh, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's no sense of earning or gaining, it's receiving. So if we want to enter the kingdom, we must receive the kingdom. We don't buy it, we don't bargain for it, we don't work for it. We receive it like a gift, like a child receives a gift, with no sense of payback or deals, empty-handed. And this is totally upside down to how the world thinks, isn't it? The world tells us that God helps those who help themselves. But the Bible says that God helps the helpless. More than that, he's only willing to help those who will acknowledge that they're helpless. So if we won't enter the kingdom like a child, by receiving it, then we won't enter it. But that's not the end of the topsy-turviness. We see, secondly, there's a man with everything who's out. Have a look with me at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke here presents us with a powerful man. He's a ruler. That could mean he's on the ruling council of the, the nation. It could mean that he's a ruler of a synagogue. Sometimes in the Bible it's translated prince, which is unlikely in this passage since he, he seems to be in uh, Israel. But anyway, he's an important man. He has at least two of the three things that men are prone to chase. Power and money. See, Luke tells us as well that he's rich. He seems to be a man who has everything. There's no hint that he got there dishonestly. He seems to be an outwardly moral man, as we'll see in a minute. He's successful, rich and powerful. And he rules. Matthew's gospel tells us that he's young as well. He's got youth on his side. That's why you often call him the rich young ruler. But interestingly, Luke doesn't tell you this. Luke doesn't mention the fact that he's young. Why? Well, because for Luke, he's setting him up in contrast to those little children. He doesn't want to think about the things they have in common, being young, if you like. He wants us to see the differences between the two. So how is he different from the little children? Well, firstly, he tries to butter up Jesus. Do you see how he addresses him? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it might sound innocuous, what he says, but in Jesus' day, people wouldn't say good teacher. They'd just say teacher. Any reference to good, really, was generally a reference to God, especially if you used it as an adjective for a person. So Jesus is right that when it's used, that, that word was reserved for God alone, normally. So really, for the rich and ruler to address him in that way is quite shocking. Because to describe someone as good was either a theological statement, in other words, Jesus, you are God, because you're good, or it was over-the-top flattery. From what follows, it would seem that it's over-the-top flattery. Because Jesus challenges him, no one is good, but God alone. Now, Jesus there is not saying that the man shouldn't call him good. Because after all, he is God, isn't he? Jesus is challenging how he's using the word good. It's a bit like uh, a church I used to go to uh, in Lancaster for a few years. Uh, when you were leaving, you know, you sort of asked the, the general question, you know, how are you doing? And uh, the sort of pastor would ask you as you left. And often I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing good, I'm good. And often the answer would be, no, you're not. <laughs> I'd say, sorry, 
no, you're not good. You might be doing well, uh, but you can't say I'm good because actually that's not right. And it's a bit like that here. He's sort of challenging his use of the word good. I mean, after all, it's likely that this man was a shrewd person, wasn't he? He's got himself rich. He's got himself powerful. He probably read how to win friends and influence people. You know, that kind of guy. And probably in the nicest possible way, he was trying to get what he wanted from Jesus. So what does he ask? He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to do something to get into the kingdom. Now this contrasts with the children, doesn't it? They could do nothing. They were powerless. But this man wants to do something. I wonder what he had in mind as he asked this. What did he expect Jesus to say? You know, generous donation to the temple? A pilgrimage to some special site? In Matthew, the the question is worded, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How much do I have to do? How good do I have to be? Perhaps he thought of it like one of his business deals. What deal must I make to get eternal life? I think many people see it that way, don't they? They're trying to do some sort of deal with God. I'll scratch my back, uh, your back um, by behaving. Um, you scratch my back by getting me to heaven and maybe getting me out of trouble every so often. I wonder if someone analysed our motives and our prayers, if they find actually that's what occupies us as well. You know, get me to heaven and get me out of trouble. But he asks uh, a question. Uh, so Jesus gives him an answer. He asks a do question. So Jesus gives him a do answer. He lists off five commandments of the Ten Commandments. And from the question posed, what must I do? This is the correct answer, as you'd expect from Jesus. He wouldn't give the wrong answer, would he? And Paul writes along similar lines in Galatians 3.12. It's on the back of your notice sheets. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It's a quote from Leviticus there, really. But what Paul is saying by that is if you could keep the law perfectly, in some sense you could merit eternal life. You really would have to be good in the way that the Bible uses the word. So that's what Jesus says. So what does the man answer? Well, have a look at verse 21. And he said, all these things I have kept from youth. This man thinks that he's kept all the commandments. Now, he says this publicly, so I think he's saying it genuinely thinking that that's what he's done. I mean, there would be there who could, uh, people who could contradict him, wouldn't there? Um, if they dare contradict a leader. But I honestly think he means what he says. In other words, what he's saying is he's moral. That's another difference from the children. He's moral. Almost as if to highlight this, he mentions that he's kept them from youth. Now, Jewish children were not expected to keep the law until they were at 13, when they'd have their bat or bar mitzvah. At that point, they were deemed morally responsible. This man was moral. The children in the previous passage couldn't be. They hadn't even reached the age of responsibility. But his morality, it seems, has a pretty big blind spot, as he explains this. And Jesus puts his finger right on it in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
The man thinks he's moral, but Jesus puts his finger on the problem. He asks him to give all his riches away. His wealth is his big blind spot. Not that his wealth was dishonest, like that tax collector Zacchaeus that Luke also tells us about. Not that wealth per se is a problem. Rich men do follow Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea is described as a rich man who was a disciple of Jesus. In James' letter, there are people who are clearly rich in the church because there's tension uh, between the rich and the poor there. What the problem is, that his wealth is more important to him than God. It's like the, it's like the opposite of that old hymn. You know the one, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Well, his thinking is, I'd rather have silver and gold than Jesus. And we know that because in verse 23, he goes away sad. Do you see that? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why is he sad? Well, he has lots to give up, doesn't he? The more you have, the harder it is to give up. And that's another difference between him and the children, isn't it? He has lots to give up, whereas the children had nothing. They weren't able to own anything. They literally had nothing. He, on the other hand, it seems, has everything. He has a lot to give up. Now, although it doesn't tell us what he actually did, I think we're to assume from it that he didn't give all his things away. He didn't start to follow Jesus. In the end, his earthly inheritance was more important to him than his heavenly one. Riches on earth were more to him than riches in heaven. Perhaps if this is why Jesus conspicuously missed out, do not covet out of his list of commandments when he said it to the man, and have no gods before me. His reaction showed that his real God was money. In the end, that was what he worshipped and trusted in. But before we start laying into the guy, we need to examine our own hearts here, don't we? Is it possible that we've fallen prey to the same problem? Coming with hands and hearts that are already full? We can come with hands full, can't we? Trying to earn our way into God's favour somehow, rather than accepting God's favour like a gift, like a child who has nothing. Sometimes we could brazenly do that with cash. I think that's more rare these days, but it has happened at points in church history. You know, give a donation on your deathbed and you'll get into heaven. But I think it reappears in some prosperity teaching as well. You know, sow a financial seed and reap a spiritual blessing. Nonsense. That's not how it works with God. Give, give generously, give cheerfully, but don't somehow think it bears, uh, buys you favour with God. So we could do it with cash, but like I say, that's a bit more rare. But it could be more subtly with things like morality and good works. We think somehow that our good behaviour gets us into God's good books. That could be initially, uh, thinking that that's the way into the kingdom. Uh, But actually Christ has done it all, hasn't he? That's the big difference. He thinks do, we think done. Christ has done it all. We receive it as children, not even able to claim morality as we do it. But I think sometimes we struggle with this as Christians as well. Thinking that our good behaviour gets us into God's good books. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are as loved by God as you can be. You're in God's good books through Christ alone, through his righteousness. 
And that means that you can come to God in whatever state you're in. Because actually your state before God is perfect in Christ. That's a gift to us from God. So we can never come to God with hands full. Claiming something from God. With our own works or our own morality or anything that we have. We must come to God with empty hands. Because we've got nothing to boast in before God. So his problem is he's got his hands full but he's also got his heart full hasn't he? His heart is full of riches. There's no room for God there. Now, as I said before, money in itself is not a problem. But when it fills our hearts, when it fills our minds, then it is a problem. And the more you have, the more danger you're in, as we'll see in a few minutes' time. It's like uh, the rapper Notorious uh, B.I.G. said, more money, more problems. And he found that in his own life as well. So our hearts can be full, too full for God. And they can be full of other things too, good things that don't allow God in. It might be work, it might be family, it might be sport, it might be hobbies, it might be a partner or spouse, it might be entertainment. These things are good things, but they're not to fill our hearts. And I think this is something that we all struggle with. You know, when my heart jumps at the thought of a new sci-fi or fantasy novel, I die a little inside, longing that my heart would jump like that for God and his word. When I spend 172 hours watching the whole box set of Bones over a few months, when I could have actually spent that time, I could have read the Bible twice, twice and a half in that time, or I could have prayed for an hour for nearly every country in the world. Even as Christians, there's a danger that we can fill our hearts with other things, making God compete for heart space, if you like, within us. Now, it's not wrong to love our families or have hobbies or enjoy entertainment, but our hearts were made for a greater treasure, heavenly treasure. And where our treasure is, our hearts will be also, won't they? So we're not really losing our treasures Actually, it's gaining a far greater treasure in heaven. So what we must do is value the things of heaven more. We must love them more. Not at the expense of our families, for example, but for the sake of our families. If we don't live for heaven, how can we expect them to? The problem is, though, as Jesus will go on to explain, that humanly speaking, this is impossible. So our last point, oh sorry, here's a man with full hands. There you go. What society believes is universal is actually impossible. Have a look with me at verse 24. (coughs) Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier... For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now we live in a society that generally doesn't believe in heaven. But at the same time believes that everybody goes there. I don't know if you've found this contradiction in our society. That, uh, you know, dead loved ones are up there looking down on us. 
or as the music Joseph uh, put it, the musical Joseph, uh, there's one more angel in heaven. You might have heard phrases like that, even though the Bible actually never says that we turn into angels. It's one of our pop culture myths. Um, but at a push, you know, really, they, they, don't, they don't believe in heaven, but they believe that everybody goes there. Equally, they don't believe in hell. But they believe that there are people there as well. So they might say Hitler or Stalin are there because they're reluctant to say that those people turn to dust. Hell doesn't exist, but Hitler's there. Heaven doesn't exist, but my family members are there. Basically, there's a belief that there is a heaven, sort of, but everybody gets to go there. Like it's a, if there is one, it's full, with a couple of notable exceptions like Hitler and Stalin. But Jesus goes totally against the grain here. No, actually, he says, going to heaven is impossible. Even guys that you think would be there won't be there, if you like. It's impossible for them to get there. Now, in Jesus' day, people believed that a good life now was evidence that you were in God's good books. So if you were wealthy, healthy, and prosperous, you must be one of God's favoured ones. So Jesus saying rich people won't be there is very similar to Jesus saying the Pharisee won't be there in the previous passage. The people you're expecting aren't there. Because it's impossible. It's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And when he says the eye of a needle, he actually means the eye of a needle, of an actual needle. It doesn't mean a gate in Jerusalem that you could only fit through after unloading your camel which you might have heard sometimes, there's absolutely no evidence that there was ever such a gate. It's just one of those stories that get passed around uh, by preachers. It sounds good, but there's no basis for it in history or in the text. So sorry if that's what you were thinking, Uh, but it's not there. Jesus is giving us an example of something that is impossible. Uh, Our children listen to a kid's song that talks about an earthworm trying to do press-ups or a potato trying to swim, or a mountain trying to brush its teeth. It's supposed to be of the order of that. It's supposed to be absurd, almost humorous with what he's saying. And the Greek word for impossible literally is the word possible within, in front of it, if you like. Impossible, not possible at all. So humanly speaking, he's saying, heaven should be empty, barring God and his angels. So the people are right to ask this question. You know, who can be saved then? If no one can do what it takes, especially the rich, well, how do we get there? Is heaven empty? Well, that's what the disciples start asking, isn't it? Hang on, if, 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 if it's impossible, are, are we in? Can we get there? Have well, a look at verse 28. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. It's as if saying, well, hang on, if you're saying this is impossible, then what are we doing? Are we in? Well, what they get is a comforting answer, but a sobering one. It's a comforting one because Jesus says, yes, you're in. With God, all things are possible, even the impossible. But this giving up of things that you're talking about is not something that you accomplish to enter the kingdom. It's not a new work that you must do to inherit salvation. Remember, we must receive it as a little child. They have literally nothing to give up. So it follows that we do give up things for Jesus, doesn't it? As we follow him, 
But it's not some meritorious work that earns us the right to heaven, which is what Jesus reminds them of. He reminds them that they're not martyrs, so to speak. Have a look at uh, verse 29. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying there that they'll receive in this life more than they left behind. Wives, brothers, parents, children. Now most people take this as a reference to the church. In the church we find a new home, don't we? A new family, much bigger than the one that we left behind. But it's also a reference to Jesus' topsy-turvy kingdom, isn't it? Where the poor will be rich. Where those without anything will inherit all things. And yes, in the age to come, eternal life. He's saying, yes, you are in. God has done it. You haven't done it. And God will bring this about. The hungry will be fed. The powerless and oppressed will reign. Mourning will turn into laughter, sadness into joy. The whole world will be turned upside down. That's what he's looking forward to. But what we see here is just a glimpse of that. So we see that actually the impossible, what is impossible, God does. And we see it here in the lives of the disciples. We see a glimpse of the impossible that is possible with God. And it's a reminder that that future to come, that topsy-turvy world, is possible even though it feels impossible. So sometimes it can feel like we get a raw deal in this life as Christians, can't it? But Jesus here is reminding his disciples that it's worth it. One day this will be different. One day the world will be turned upside down. So you may have left all things now, but actually there is much to come in the future. So this is not fiction, this is fact. So, that even if we sometimes feel like our lives are as tragic as something written by Shakespeare, or as boring or as complicated as something written by some French guy, we can hold on to the hope that one day the world will be turned upside down. When those who come with nothing, like children, will possess everything. With those with full hands, actually, they won't be in. So come with empty hands now to the Lord Jesus. Take his hand with your empty hand and enjoy eternal life with him forever. The Lord can do the impossible. He can rescue us. He can save us. So let's pray that he would do. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that so often we come to you uh, trying to do deals with hands that are full uh, of our works or of uh, different things that we try to do. Father, help us to know that we must come to you with empty hands. Uh, Father, we confess that so often we come to you with our hearts full. Father, help us to love you more uh, than the things of this world. Father, pray that they become dim uh, in the light of your glory and grace. Father, help us to come like little children. Father, not immature and silly, but Father, with nothing in our hands and love in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a song that speaks about uh, our hands coming empty uh, to the Lord Jesus. Let's stand and sing Rock of Ages, Clap for Me.